welcome to Branding Bud Live, the live stream that's 100% THC, 0% WTF. Every week we bring business people together to talk about the business of cannabis. I'm David Palaszczuk, the founder of Branding Bud Consulting Group and the author of Branding Bud, The Commercialization of Cannabis, the first book on cannabis branding. And I'm joined by my co-host, Adriana Hemans, a marketing expert with over eight years in the cannabis industry. Welcome, Adriana. Hi, David. How are you? Thank you for that lovely intro. Although I don't think I would call myself an expert, but I appreciate your vote of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're an expert in my opinion. And as always, I call you my BCF, my best cannabis friend. So my best cannabis friend. I love it. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday to you. I just want to call out. I look a little, the background's a little bit different than what you're used to seeing me in. And that's because I am on site at the brand new SC Labs lab in uh, in SoCal, in LA. It's brand new. Grand opening was on Tuesday. And as you can see, there's nothing on the shelf yet. But we'll be uh, <laughs> finishing this setup over the next couple of weeks. That's awesome. I've, hey, I've got a book for you for that, for those shelves. I've got I the- bet you do. Maybe a yellow one would look nice here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. I'm excited today. We've got a lot going on. Totally. Yeah, we really do. So, um, well, anyway, what we do have going on is the ins and outs of cannabis licensing. That's our title for the show today. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the hurdles and roadblocks in obtaining a cannabis license, what types of cannabis licenses there, there are, and what does building a national brand in a fragmented um, you know, world mean from a cannabis licensing perspective? And then really, are there different rules and, and different requirements for different states? So those are the ins and outs. We'll dig through a few of them. Um, our guest today, and I'm super excited about um, her joining us. Our guest today is Sarah Gullickson. She's the founder and CEO of the CB Advisors. And she's recognized or has been recognized as a top 20 woman to dominate the international cannabis space. More importantly, she secured over three dozen licenses. That's amazing licenses in 16 states. So I'm super excited to just chat with her about what it's like to get a license and, um, you know, what, what are the cannabis boards looking for in applicants and, and all of that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. So um, it's, it's pretty interesting. But um, anyway, I'm super excited. I see we have some friends from Humboldt and, and the garden. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Caleb. A few others. Sean, welcome. Hi, Nick from Chile Midwest. That's right. That's right. Well, that said, um, before we bring Sarah on, I just want to call out, as always, we have our audience participation, right? We pull out some stats and we try to contextualize some of the things we're talking about on a weekly basis uh, because one data point just isn't enough these days. And we know there's enough fake news going on around here. So we, we, we're all about um, data points, connecting them, bringing experts on. Um, just getting a little more insight into into the ins and outs of cannabis and today in particular the ins and outs of cannabis licensing. So that said, we'll go through a few audience participations during the show as we always do, but let's bring out our guest right now, Sarah Gullickson. Hi Sarah, Hi. welcome. Hey, how's everyone doing? We're doing awesome. How are you? Awesome to have you here. Let's kick it off. Let, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're passionate about. All right. So I've been in the cannabis industry uh, 13, almost 14 years. So that kind of dates me a little bit. But 
you know, I got in not knowing what was what was going on or if I was going to like it or hate it. And um, fortunately for me, I fell in love with the industry. I fell in love with the pace of the industry. Um, and I've been able to work in, you know, 20 some odd, you know, states, maybe even 30 by now and five countries. Um, so, you know, my my passion for the industry was was realistically just my like wanting to learn about something new and my out of the box thinking. And um, I grew up in a naturopathic household. Um, my sister was diagnosed with a rare blood disorder when we were young and the doctors wanted to take her spleen and put her on, um, you know, a bunch of medicine. And so, you know, since I grew up in an environment that way, when somebody came to me and was like, hey, get involved in cannabis, it wasn't scary for me. It was just like, oh, okay. You know, if somebody can take something natural and make themselves feel better, like, let's check it out. Um, so I would say I was young and naive, um, and that's what got me in. And then um, maybe fear kept me going. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm super passionate about the industry. You know, I've had chances to exit, and, you know, I'm still here, and I still love creating projects and, you know, helping states legalize or go from med to recreational, and, you know, that's kind of the very high level version of why I'm here and what I love. That's awesome. You know, it's, it's amazing. <clears throat> 13 or 14 years is a long time in the cannabis industry. I think they're, they're like, it would be a long time in any industry, I feel like, but especially in cannabis. It's true. It's true. And you know, I've been in now just over 12, almost 13 years and, and it's rare. I don't hear other than the really old school, old school totally you know, OG folks. Uh, yep. So it's just it's interesting. That's I uh, think we're OGs now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that happens, doesn't it? How does Cannabis that is like dog years too, right? So it's like, you know, we've been in it longer than 12, 13 years. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny. We used to talk about that when I worked at Microsoft and, and cannabis is I don't know what's uh, I know there has to be a, a an animal year uh, that's more correspondent to the cannabis industry if, if working at Microsoft is a dog year. But, uh, yeah, sure. it, it's pretty tough and it's it changes all the time. And, uh, and that's what's pretty interesting about it. You know, I'm curious, we spoke, or in the intro, I spoke about the hurdles and the obstacles, you know, to obtaining a license. Um, would you just talk briefly about different states and, and maybe some of the you know, the differences and maybe some of the more glaring differences from state to state, just to give us a sense of how different the, the rules are? Yeah, so we pretty much categorize um, cannabis licensing states into three categories. So we have the limited license, merit-based, highly competitive state processes. And in those, you have to pull out all the stops. I mean, we've had clients spend $500,000 just on the application not even knowing if they were going to actually get the license. And those are in states like Pennsylvania, Maryland, uh, Hawaii, where Arizona, um, well, actually, I wouldn't categorize Arizona in merit-based. Um, and so those, you know, you have to really work on building a great business plan, telling a good story, being a local that's functioned great in, you know, the environment that you plan on opening in so that that local jurisdiction has some trust in you and some faith in you. Um, and those are like my favorite projects because so much strategy goes into them, um, you know, so much community building, uh, you know, real estate selections, very competitive. Um, and then building out this, you know, thousand page RFP or request for proposal with all your standard operating procedures, 
outlining to the government how you are going to function within their environment, you know, it's, it's challenging. It's a great task. And for us, you know, there's a lot of copy paste consultants out there, but we really like to ensure that the plan's very, very um, customized to the local format, whatever that looks like. And as you know, the local format's very different in every state, um, you know, depending on whether it's med, rec, how many licenses, you know, if you're vertical or not, meaning can you cultivate, process, and sell, or are you just doing one of the distribution channels? So you would, I would say merit-based is the, is the heaviest lift in a competitive limited license process. And then the second category is um, checklist process. So checklist process is, you know, here's 10 things. You have to show us that you have real estate or maybe, you know, a community plan or whatever that looks like. The government goes through it, make sure you have everything, and then you pass through. And those are a lot of times in like California, Colorado. So it's not necessarily a limited license um, uh, state. And then um, now in a lot of states now have lottery, which is my least favorite. Um, Arizona has a lottery. That's how I got involved in the industry. And it's like, hey, show us a couple things. Make sure that your, your app's compliant. And then we're going to literally pull your name out of a lottery machine. And then whoever gets it wins. Wait, so uh, someone, sorry, sorry to cut you off, but I have to jump in here. Someone's going to pay $500,000 to get set up and they may end up with absolutely nothing because it's just a randomized drawing. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. So the, the, the merit-based licenses where it's limited license and you're putting your huge RFP or request for proposal together, that can cost you around $5,000. The lottery fees are going for anywhere from like $250 to like, Two years ago, we participated in Arizona's lottery and it was 25K. So I haven't seen anything for a lottery that was over the $25,000. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, cannabis is crazy. We know that. It's crazy in every arena. Um, and so that's how we really categorize the three license types. And then there's obviously idiosyncrasies upon idiosyncrasies in each of the categories. Well, because I, I know, for example, in Washington State, you know, one of the things... Um, that's really slowing things down is that investors, I believe investors need to uh, live in the state, have residency in the state, and, and therefore it's saturated already. You know, everybody that lives here who wants to invest has invested. And right. else really from out of state is looking to invest, you know, to move or, or to set up residency. So it's just, it's so intriguing to see um, not only state by state, but I guess we'll talk later about you know, retail versus dis retail and dispensary versus cultivation versus like the different types of licenses. But we'll, we'll jump into that uh, a little bit later. Sarah, I'm curious to hear from you. What is it like? Uh, David mentioned you have 36 licenses that you've secured. What is it like managing so many? So we do a lot of client work at the firm. And then I am such a serial entrepreneur that I do a lot of like my own projects where I'll put together groups of local people and investors. So I personally do not have 36 licenses. I wish I did because I'd retire, um, <laughs> but I do not. I have about eight licenses. Um, and, you know, my business model is really simple. The first license that I got was in 2018. I was already starting my family. Um, and since my skill set is obviously very strong in license acquisition, you know, I'll put together local groups with investors and then we'll do the application fee for equity or yeah, for equity. 
Um, and then my model's simple. I either have the local people um, run the license and that works very, very well. And then if they need me and if they need our help at the firm for standard operating procedures or marketing help or strategy, you know, they give us a call or give me a call. And then some of my licenses, I just, I rent out. Um, and so what that means is I'll either have a management group or somebody will come in and get equity in the license and, and run the facility. So, you know, I think everybody's, you know, impression is that I know so much about cannabis and I, I know a lot about cannabis, but I know about the business side of cannabis. Like if you put me in a grow, I would kill your plants. Like it just would not be great. And even in a retail environment, like I don't know the ins and outs like everybody else does that literally is in a facility every single day. So, mm -hmm. and then, you know, the same goes for clients. Like a lot of times we have so much fun working with a client and see such great success in securing them a license that they're like, hey, we're local, we're new to the industry, we haven't had this industry before, and can you open us? And it's like, of course we can open you. And so we'll work either on like a, you know, statement of work proposal or a retainer just to say like, hey, what do you need? Call us when you need us or else, you know, we'll actually do our whole grand opening for them. Um, but my goal was never to be in a facility every single day. Um, you know, I learned very early on in my career that I liked the consulting element of it because I like being able, or before I had kids, I guess, I like being able to work from Thailand. I like to be able to work from Croatia. And so, you know, being a consultant has lent a lot of flexibility and had, you know, I've been able to create a life that a lot of people couldn't even imagine before COVID. Well, Sarah, duly noted, and we should speak offline about consulting from Thailand. I'd like to speak to you about that after. <laughs> All right. I don't know if I remember how to do do that kind of consulting. <laughs> and I'm expecting an invite from both of you to Thailand. Uh, let's jump into our first audience participation. What do you think? Should we do? Should we throw up a slide and and get started and and. Sh uh, See if people are ready to take some guesses and throw some uh, throw some guesses in the chat. I think so this has to do with cultivation. Ready. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. I think the audience is ready. I think they're ready, right? Yeah. Uh, this has to do with cultivation licenses. And the question is, California has the most cultivation licenses of any state with 6,881. Which state holds the second spot with 1,406? Is it A, Washington, B, Colorado, C, Oklahoma, or D, Oregon? And these are cultivation licenses. Cultivation. Just to be clear. And we were talking about cultivation earlier, and that's the area I admittedly know least about. I leave that up to the experts. I have so much respect for what they do, but my, my area is more on marketing, retail, and now compliance, having to, to come work now at Course Compliance. So. Well, I'm curious to see because we, we definitely have a number of uh, cultivators uh, um, and here they come. Boy, they're flooding in. In the meantime, I just want to call out a couple of people from uh, the Pacific Northwest here. One is Brittany Parker. Hey, Brittany. We, we definitely have to get together. We see, we have all these people in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle that never get together except for the big events. Um, we have some others from Minnesota as well. Thank you, everybody. Well, wow, it seems like D is. Uh... <laughs> this was a hard question. Maybe it's too hard. We should reveal the answer. Let's do it. Well, before we do, Sarah, sorry, what do you think the answer is? Oh, oops. 
I'm cheating. <laughs> All right. It's Let's amazing see. looking at this chart because there's such a huge steep drop off wow. from the top state or the state with the greatest quantity to the next level down. I actually would have guessed Washington, to be honest. Interesting. It's it's funny. I mean, it seems there's a blur between for for some between Oregon and Washington, um, but but there's there's I mean, this really is quite a drop off. And so Oregon comes in second behind California with a, one thousand with one thousand four hundred six licenses, and then Washington comes in third with a thousand seventy licenses. Really, when you think about it, making the West Coast the leader in cannabis cultivation. I guess that's no surprise, California, Oregon, Washington. But um, you add those three up and it's it's quite a bit. Um, yeah, which would be exciting if interstate commerce comes around, right? The West Coast will be exporting across the U.S. potentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, Sarah, um, like we've, we've seen in New York right now, I think New York is a great example of um, of laws coming into effect um, or, or licenses coming into effect and licenses being handed out, yet the laws uh, really being, a, a, being lagging behind. You know, so, so in New York, I think it, it's a great example of um, people might know their license, but they're first figuring out the laws. And now I think, you know, at this point, I, I believe two dispensaries in New York are um, but it's just interesting to see. Um, is there any uh, any thoughts about you know that lag time between um, between when somebody gets a license and when they actually open up a dispensary or start cultivating? How does I mean that's that's a often a big gap. How does a business sort of manage that? Yeah, it's interesting. So we just uh, submitted a light or a couple applications in Alabama, and their timeline is like two years. So basically they'll take in the RFP or RFAs, grade them, score them, announce the winners. And then I think that the winners have like 12, 18 months to open. And so by the time you do all that, it's two years out, which is really crazy, especially since people are having to like lease buildings during that two year period prior to even opening. And in um, Alabama, you get three retail outlet. So it's not just one building you're holding over. But at the end of the day, like especially in the merit-based application programs, it takes that long. I mean, if you're getting a thousand page or a 500 page application, they have to read them, they have to score them. And there has to be like some sort of, you know, a lot of them go through an algorithm, but you still see people go through them. Well, if you're grading your 10th app for the day, like I guarantee the score is not going to be as high. You're bored, right? So, I mean, it just takes time. I actually do really like it when the states put that like opening timetable on um, just because I think that going into the program, you have to have some integrity, meaning have the capital or have your investors like lined up to open um, you know, but with it, unfortunately with anything good, like it takes time. They can't just like throw these stores up line and the people that can are the multi-state operators that are like literally so sure that they're going to get these licenses. Otherwise they're going to have the cash to purchase one. 
And then they're going to be able to open because they've already done real estate selection, all of their tenant improvements, their marketing's already live, their communications team is intact. And so, you know, the longer timelines just allow for the industry to be, I think what we all still crave for it to be, which is an incubator for local groups to also get in and have, you know, dispensaries with some flavor and mom and pa groups and local people that are doing really cool, unique things instead of just giving all the licenses to the multi-state operators. Right. Absolutely. I love what you just said about the incubator for community-based businesses. That's awesome. Yes. I mean, we've seen so many cool groups that are local people with amazing resumes, either working at corporate or entrepreneurs themselves get these licenses and do really great things with them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm just, that's why I keep my firm so boutique -y. It's like, we really like to work with the people that have good intentions and good ideas for the industry so that we're creating cool businesses that are compliant and that people like feel good going into. Mm -hmm. We talked a little bit about the struggle of people who are applying for licenses and how that can be really challenging. And we know that another challenge is also, uh, competition from the illicit market. Can you talk a little bit about that and about sort of that interplay of vertical integration and combating um, competition from the illicit market? Yeah, so, you know, in my example for this is always like, when has a community ever been able to fully shift their culture? It just doesn't really happen, right? And so California's culture is cannabis. It, it's where cannabis was born. It's where the industry was born. It's where like the legal industry. And so I know a lot of the California operators are having a hard time, you know, with competing because the fees are high, the regulations are stacked. They don't necessarily make sense together. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's an answer to that. New York's going through the same thing right now where it's like, I mean, if you're downtown New York, you can get, I mean, pretty much any drug you want, right? And that's part of the culture in New York, right? New York functions unlike anywhere else in the United States. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how that's, you know, how that, how that levels out, you know, and how the playing field ends up looking once there's like legal operators. I mean, in Canada, it's the same thing, right? I mean, I used to speak um, on Tony Robbins Roadshow. So I did so much in Canada. And I went into a dispensary, made a purchase, and then I told my friend that was in Canada, like, oh, I went into this dispensary. And she's like, yeah, that's that's not a licensed one. And I'm like, well, how would you know, you know? So, um, you know, I just think it's 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 kind of part of the deal. Um, and I don't, I don't see in a lot of those markets that I just named, like the illicit market shrinking completely. Um, and then what was your question about vertical integration? Oh, just how um, does it help or hinder if it's allowed in certain states for, for people to stay competitive against businesses that are popping up, don't have a license, don't have to pay taxes? What does the interplay look like between those two factors? So I don't think it's like a vertical conversation. I more look at it as a limited license conversation, because if you have even 5,000 licenses or 3,000 licenses, there's got to be, or 300, whatever it is, there's got to be a way to have some sort of a task force ensuring that that's the amount of licenses, right? 5,000 is probably a little steep, but you get what I'm saying. Um, 
for me, I'm not a huge fan of vertical integration unless it's like true vertical integration where you're allowed to cultivate, process, and dispense your own cannabis. But once you get into the wholesale markets, the barrier to entry is so steep to run a vertical. Like if you're looking at like Florida or New York or Arizona, um, you know, to open up a vertical license, you're looking at, you know, 10 million easy. And then that shuts out a lot of the small people or locals. And in some states, you're forced to do that, you know. So, um, and we have a, a slide which just talks about vertical integration. So, if you could bring that up, that would be awesome. But, you know, it, it really, I mean, it really comes down to, um, you know, to the ability for, for some or the inability for some to, to basically not only have the, well, let's start off with the cultivation, right? They need the cultivation, they need the building, they need all the facilities, then they need, Everything that brings it right up into the processing and then all the way through to, um, to the store, the retail dispensary. So, what that does is that costs a lot of money, which really knocks mm -hmm. a lot of the mom and pops out of the running for something. Um, so, um, you know, it's interesting to talk about that. And our slides coming up in a moment, but it will just kind of just show. Um, here we go. You know, so. So really, you know, the effects of vertical integration, and I'll just read through this quickly, is each company is forced to grow, um, process, and distribute their own product. And only a few companies can afford to receive a license, creating a small market with limited competition. It's expensive startup costs and high barriers to entry perpetuate the inequitable ownership and employment. And from a medical standpoint, patients are left with fewer options and less overall access. So. It's really interesting, you know, when states take this approach of vertical integration, I don't think they really, you know, thought through how it really affects um, not only cannabis as a whole, but, but the various communities, whether, whether it be, you know, patients or, or the adult use markets or mom and pops that want to be in the market, or quite frankly, the legacy folks that have been in the market and have been serving communities, you know, similar to what you said earlier, um, they don't get to perpetuate. They don't get to do what they've been doing and serve their community that they've been serving for years. So it's really interesting uh, to see this and to think about it, you know, in, in, in some ways that, you know, if you think about it, vertical integration is somewhat inequitable mm -hmm. uh, and, and unfair. Uh, it really puts the, the folks with money, uh, you know, uh, in the right spot. I guess folks with money are always in the right spot. But you know, this is just um, this is just an example of, of how this works and how, if it were a little um, a little, if if it was horizontal integration, it would just be a little more flowing. People could pick and choose the markets they want to serve or or the or their uh, leverage their core capabilities. Um, you know, so they could focus on what they're very best at. Yeah. You also focus on it. Yeah, I totally agree. Just because then your skill set has to be like retail environment, manufacturing, and like agriculture, basically. And it's like that's a really wide skill set. Right, <clears throat> right. Like who, who does that? <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. It's hard so, to do it all. It is hard. So to do hard. It. It's hard Even to do one of those things. Um, you, you know, so let's just flip this around for a moment. What 
what makes a perfect cannabis license applicant? And um, is there such a thing? You know, and what, what are the cannabis boards looking for? I guess you said a few different things earlier, but what makes a great cannabis license applicant? So it's funny because I started speaking like early on into my career in cannabis and I would always like position the five elements that are great to have when you're, you know, applying for a cannabis license. And a lot's changed in the cannabis industry, but that has not changed. So, you know, you have to have a team of people that can execute and be compliant. Um, you have to have a group of people that know cannabis. You have to have the financial resources to do the business. Uh, community ties, and I'm not talking about white envelopes and politicking, I'm talking about community ties to the environment that you're opening in, I believe are always going to work for you with you know, making sure that that municipality knows what you're capable of and how much they can trust you. Um, and then the fifth thing's always been real estate. Um, and so those were really my five ingredients that I started touting, you know, even back in the day. And that's not really changed. I mean, now we have some elements like diversity or social equity and like that changes the makeup of your team. Um, but for the most part, if you have, you know, those five things, I'll work with you. If you don't have those five things, we won't. So, um, you know, those are the things that we look for and somebody that would be positioned very well to dip their toe into the industry. Since you just mentioned social equity programs a second ago, Sarah, can we talk a little bit about that? And, and what are some state programs that are doing this effectively and maybe some that you see that need some improvement? Any examples? Yeah, so that conversation is interesting for me because like all of my personal licenses are diverse licenses. And now the diversity conversation has gone by the wayside and now it's all about social equity, right? So, I mean... I understand it and I get why it makes sense to include some of the people that have been wronged by, you know, cannabis criminalization or whatever that looks like, you know, to get them into the industry and start, you know, you know, them down the path of like, you know, producing in like a legal fashion, right? It's just, you know, the back door's so wide open on these programs because of the fact that I mean, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of social equity applicants, and I would say 98% of the social equity applicants haven't had the resources, financial resources or skill set to put a deck together, to put a performer together. And I'm not saying from like a credential standpoint, but they if they have the like business framework, they might not have the cannabis framework. So to me, my favorite social equity program so far um, is New York. And literally we were joking when we did New York because we were like looking for unicorns, which we literally were. Um, so we were looking for somebody that had, you know, cannabis convictions. And then we were looking for somebody that also turned their life around and was a business owner. And so we ended up working with two groups um, and submitting the applications with and for them and taking equity in the business because they didn't have, you know, cannabis you know, they, they, they didn't have cannabis experience. So I felt like getting in our hands versus one of the MSOs, we could really, you know, do something that would, you know, set their family apart and, you know, get them the resources that they potentially needed to run the facility themselves or just have like a legacy for their family. 
Um, right now we're working in Illinois. Um, it's free for all. You don't have to have a residency requirement. People from all over the country can apply. The um, credentialing is like very, very loose. Um, we're working in Washington. We actually just signed a woman today um, that's planning on, you know, submitting her application and she needs help. And she's like a total rock star. She has, you know, degrees upon degrees and has her finances in order. So that's super exciting. But Washington has the residency requirement. So, you know, like you said, Washington's super saturated. Washington's been, you know, in the game for a really long time. And so these are licenses that were given back or gone out of business and now they're giving them back out. Um, which I think is good, but, you know, who knows how much runway they're going to have. And at that point, it's a very competitive business. And what's your marketing line item every single month? So um, I'd say New York's my favorite. New York also has funding. I forgot to mention that. So we can get our funding through the state um, for our actual real estate and tenant improvements. And then we just have to raise capital for our operations, which I think is like fabulous. Um, I think if we saw more states come online in a fashion like New York did, I think I would be, I'd feel really good about it. Um, if we see, you know, states like Arizona and Illinois, you know, come online where it's just kind of a free for all. And then, you know, the MSOs are tying the people to a contract and giving them a $400 gift certificate just to like put their name on the thing without reading the contracts. Like that's a problem. <laughs> you heard it here first. States coming online. Copy New York. Uh-huh. You mentioned something uh, earlier, um, which kind of caught me by surprise. Um, forgive me if I can't mention this. Um, a diverse, a diverse license and a social equity license. It's interesting, you know, the nuance between those two. Um, are there are there specific diverse licenses and um, social equity licenses? So before social equity came online, there were usually a number of licenses in some of the states. So if there were 100 licenses available, they'd give 25% of them to diverse entities. So that's either women owned and ran, um, African-American or whatever in that state um, classified as diverse. But now that the licenses are getting so like synthesized, I guess I would say, they they kind of put that out and brought social equity in. So we're not seeing a lot of diverse application categories that puts women to the front of the line or diver other diverse categories to the front of the line because social equity is kind of taking those over. Um, so that's the correlation that I was like hinting to, I guess. Okay, cool. No, that, that, that makes sense. Should we jump to our audience participation number two? Right. Let's do it. Who's ready? It's kind of choice. So, audience, this is your chance to shine again. And thank you, everybody. I see um, so many people. Pete, Aaron, thank you so much. Um, so, let's jump into this. All right, kind of quiz number two. As of December 22nd, so just really a, a month ago or two months ago, what state had the most dispensary and retail license? Dispensary and retail license. Is it A, California, B, Michigan, C, Oklahoma, or D, Colorado? And again, this is uh, only dispensary and retail licenses. It's just really from the last two months. Um, and 
Uh, Hello, Jason McHugh from Calafari and Ruth Fisher. Oops. I think we should uh, we should go to Jeopardy, Ruth, uh, perhaps, uh, which is answering the form of the question. Um, maybe not. Um, I'm seeing quite a few guesses for D, Colorado, and a couple for A, California. Let's say about evenly split between A and D. And I also want to say thank you to Aaron for clowning me from my background. Definitely going to be on Room Raider for sure. <laughs> <laughs> like I said before, I have a book for that shelf. Um, cool. Well, all right. We've got, um, oh, Aaron, C, otherwise A. <laughs> all right. Well, um, before we go to the, the answer, can we ask Sarah to come back? I'll go with A. Okay, you're going with A. Okay, so so for the most part, you're thinking you're thinking it's either A or D. California or Colorado seems to be where most people are falling in. Should we uh, we go for the answer? Let's reveal the answer. Surprising. Yeah, the answer is Oklahoma. Aaron got it right. Aaron guessed C, and yep. so did Jason. Good job. And just a quick note on this, uh, on the slide, the answer in the slide, which is really interesting. So surprisingly, Oklahoma has 2,628 dispensary and retail licenses, which equates to 24% of all, again, uh, retail licenses nationally granted. Um, and if you just look at the numbers here, they might be a little hard to see, but let me just throw these two things out, which is really interesting. So California has a population of just about 39 million people, and they have 1,092 dispensaries, whereas Oklahoma has 3.9 million people, right? California has 10 times more the amount of people in Oklahoma, and the dispensaries are 2,628. California has 10 times more people, um, with half the amount of dispensaries versus overall. So it's um, it's it's really interesting to sort of see that. And, and you know, Sarah, is that, um, I, don't, I don't know, like, is there any rhyme or reason, you know, why certain states, um, you know, can really go up the deep end and, and other states are more maybe moderate with their, um, you know, with, with their counts on, with their license counts? You know, I'm just, I'm not a big fan of unlimited licenses. I just think from like a regulation standpoint and making sure that they're actually like regulated facilities is just like a huge nightmare. Um, but states like Oklahoma, like they just came out the gate and they were like, this is going to be a free for all. So I've worked on one project in Oklahoma um, and it's just like it became like an incubator for crime and bringing in, you know, foreign dollars and mob ties and just too much like political, negative political interference. Um, and then in California, I think that numbers shrunk significantly because of the fact that it was a free for all, right? And then they put all these crazy regulations on top of everything. And then the state's regulations doesn't make sense with the municipality's regulations. And so it's just become like a real nightmare for people to like, function in, in California. Um, so for me, I mean, 
I think that like when you're talking about why the states do what they do, I think they know what they're doing, right? So like New York, when it legalized, they did vertical licenses and they did a handful of them. They knew what they were doing. They were bringing the big dogs in and letting the big dogs have the lion's share. And then people complained and now they're like, you know, separating it and bringing like smaller people in and social equity candidates and stuff like that. So, you know, I think back in the day, the states didn't get a lot of flack for doing it. And now everybody has their eyes on the cannabis industry and it's become such a hot topic conversation that the states know that they can't get away with that stuff anymore. Um, you know, same goes for you know, the unlimited licenses, like Oklahoma came out the floodgates, gave all these licenses away. And then all of a sudden they were like, shoot, we have to put a moratorium down because we don't know what we're doing. And like, it's just gone wild. Right. So it's like, why wouldn't you do something like, you know, Texas or some of the other states that said, pending on the patient count or pending on, you know, supply and demand, then we'll add licenses online. To me, that's the most realistic and logical approach but you know each state does has their own agenda and it takes you know i think when i first got into this industry i was so blind to politics um you know and sometimes like adding things like that in the bill get it passed or it gets the right pockets behind it and so like we're not in a perfect world and like the more i learned about politics and why things are the way they are the less critical i became because you know, would you rather have no med or recreational use in your state or would you have, you know, without capitalism or with capitalism? You know what I mean? It's just like, there's not like a perfect program. And I think once you kind of throw the like negative out the window, instead of like trying to like critique all the programs, it's like, okay, here's the framework of the programs. We can lobby to bring some other things in. But like at the end of the day, like it's amazing what the industry's done in such a short period of time and gotten access to millions of people that wouldn't have had it before. So at the end of the day, we're still doing awesome, you know? Yeah, a couple of really good comments just popped up that I wanted to call out. One is from Ruth who added, um, Oklahoma grow and retail licenses are available to any resident for about $2,500. Super helpful context. And also I liked what Aaron said, a low bar to access license is true social equity. Interesting perspective there. You know, and just, just to comment really quickly, Sarah, you said something which is amazing. You know, um, dealing with clients all the time in the cannabis industry and developing brands and programs, we always say, we, Adriana and I, we always say, um, who are your clients? You know, we ask about their customers and their clients. We always start there first. And it's interesting that you just basically said, like, the state should look at who their cannabis consumers are. Um, you, you know what I mean? And and once you know who you're appealing to, how many they are and what the needs are, then you can start setting up the programs that offer the licenses that support the people that need the licenses. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. Um so quick quick last question here. I mean, how does um how does real estate you, you know tie into this? You know, does does one need to have real estate first before a license? Is it the chicken or the egg? You know, is does real estate come first or um, or license comes first? Most of the states that are not social equity programming, you have to apply with real estate. New Jersey, Texas, Alabama. The social equity element's different where they're giving it away uh, by the region in most of them. And so you don't have a physical address at the time of applying, which 
I know it's a chicken and egg conversation, but real estate's the hardest part, right? So to me, it makes sense that you at least have like a letter of intent or something, maybe not even binding, um, that if and when the license is awarded, here's where you would open. I mean, some clients, we go through 40, 50, 80 listings to check setbacks. I mean, it's just real estate is the hardest piece. Interesting. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. You've taken us through a, a lot of uh, the ins and outs of uh, cannabis licensing. Um, super helpful. And, and I, I hope you know, it would help uh, all our listeners just you know, kind of get their heads around the different types of licenses, how the states and well, how the industry is fragmented, how the states uh, do it all on their own. So it's nice to know there's somebody that can connect those dots for us in the industry and uh, and make those things easier. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, hold on. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. That went by so fast. I learned a lot. It always goes by fast. And, and here we are at our 45-minute mark, our 45 minutes of, uh, of uh, positivity and... Um, and learning and knowledge in the middle of the week or close to the middle of the week. So anyway, with that, um, here we are at the end of our show. So we'll be back again next Thursday, February 9th. Can you believe it is February already? And we'll be chatting with Kim Prince, the CEO of Proven Media, uh, which is a PR firm based in Arizona that focuses on cannabis. And we're excited about that. And what's cool about that is we will be discussing when cannabis public relations becomes cannabis crisis management. So we'll be talking about a lot of the things that have happened in the industry and how uh, companies can, you know, really uh, have a safety net and think about those things before they happen. Um, that said, thank you, everybody, so much. We're super excited to bring you shows every week. Adriana, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and, and talk with our guests. Um, thank you, everybody, for chatting with us today. We'll see you next Thursday. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.